This message comes from NPR sponsor, Proven Winners Colored Choice Shrubs, offering flowering shrubs and evergreens for beautiful, easy-care landscapes and gardens. From hydrangeas to lilacs, explore the whole collection at provenwinnerscolorchoice.com slash NPR. This is The Pulse, stories about the people and places at the heart of health and science. I'm Mike and Scott. Investigative journalist Dave Lindorf was looking at pictures of spies, people who had leaked secret research on the atomic bomb to the Russians during the Manhattan Project. And one of the pictures just didn't fit in. There was this kid. It was this pimply-faced kid. He had a real acne problem, and he looked like he was in high school. And I thought, what is this? Dave saw the kid's name under the photo, Theodore Hall, Ted. And I found out that he was the youngest physicist hired and that he never was caught. And I thought, wow. Dave ended up writing an article about Ted and his efforts to give away America's top-secret atomic bomb technology to the Russians. And afterwards, he got an email. Dear Dave, I'm reading your article with tears in my eyes about Ted Hall. I'm his widow. And we need to talk. And this is how Dave ended up learning a whole lot more about Ted, his motivations for spying, and why he was never prosecuted or tried for his actions. This is a national emergency. The Manhattan Project is back in our conversations and minds with the blockbuster movie Oppenheimer and the upcoming Academy Awards. The film is nominated for 13 Oscars, including Best Picture. It tells the story of J. Robert Oppenheimer, the brilliant theoretical physicist behind the Manhattan Project and the father of the atomic bomb. We're in a race against the Nazis. It shows the Manhattan Project as a super-secret mission carried out in isolation in the New Mexico desert, a desperate and bold effort to end the war. But Dave Lindorf says as time went on, some of the scientists started to doubt the project. A lot of scientists at the project were actually saying, we shouldn't be doing this anymore. We don't need the bomb. Among them was young Ted Hall. The U.S. was not going to be a benign influence in the world if it had the bomb to itself. What changed Ted's mind? Why did he become a spy? And how did he get away with it? Dave has written a book about all of this. It's called Spy for No Country. He also co-produced a documentary called A Compassionate Spy. Were you scared about this step that you were going to take? You frightened? I can't remember being frightened. No, I don't think so. You didn't think, if I do this, I'm breaking the law and they might execute me? No. On today's episode, Atomic Age Angst, a conversation about one man's effort to stop the world from burning. Later on, we'll look at the current state of the nuclear arsenal and why some say it needs a major upgrade. But first, let's stick with Dave Lindorf and the story of the teenage scientist turned spy. How did Ted Hall get to be the youngest person to be recruited for the Manhattan Project? Where was he at the time? Who got alerted to his talents? At 18, he was a junior physics major at Harvard. And he was recommended by John Van Fleck, who was his advisor, very famous astrophysicist. And the project had stripped, really, most of the physics departments in the country of top physicists, and they needed more. It was getting hard for them to offer important physics classes to undergraduates because all the professors were working for the Manhattan Project. It was a huge project. But they needed more because they were racing to get the bomb before the war ended. So... Oppenheimer sent somebody to recruit people based on recommendations from their professors, and Ted was invited. And how did he fit in? I mean, it must have been so daunting for somebody that young to be, A, now operating in an adult world as an employee as opposed to student with all these big-name physicists. Well, it obviously is extremely exciting and at the same time pretty daunting, like you say. These were really brilliant guys, and he was probably the most brilliant of all of them. 
and he uh, was assigned to work fairly soon afterwards on the implosion system of the plutonium bomb, which was a very complicated bomb. What, the uranium bomb was very simple. The plutonium bomb was extremely complicated, but the plutonium was easy to get, whereas uranium was hard to get, the refined U-235. So he was working on the implosion system and the fine points of the last part of getting it to work. You had to get 32 pieces of compressors to push the plutonium together perfectly symmetrically. They had to explode within microseconds with uh, chemical explosives to hit it in every direction at the same time. And that's what was really hard. So he was working on that, actually doing test explosions with a surrogate for the plutonium. They couldn't obviously blow off plutonium all the time. <laughs> and what do we know about how he felt about the project? Well, originally, it was presented as we think the Germans are trying to get an atomic bomb. And Einstein had warned Roosevelt that he needed to get the bomb first. And so that's what launched the project. Roosevelt agreed with Einstein. And so when Ted got called, it was early 1944. And what they told him when he got to Los Alamos, that what he was working on was a, a bomb to beat the Germans. Ted was a second-generation Russian immigrant Jew He was very concerned about what was happening in Germany to Jews all over Europe. So obviously to him, this made a lot of sense. So he felt like he was doing, you know, something really good. And at what point did he change his mind about that? Pretty quickly. In March of 1944, Germany was already on its back feet, you know, on its heels because of the Soviets defeating them in Russia and starting to push them back towards Germany. So the senior scientists were saying, you know, why are we doing this? They're not going to get the bomb. They were getting bombed already. And their army was being destroyed in the East Front. So a lot of scientists at the project were actually saying, we shouldn't be doing this anymore. We don't need the bomb. And others were saying we should bring the Russians in on it so that at the end of the war, we won't have a competitive race to make the bomb. Because presumably, the Russians were our allies at yes, that time. Yes, our, our key allies. They <laughs> right. were doing all the, all the heavy lifting of destroying the Wehrmacht. So everybody was cheering them in the U.S. And, and Ted must have heard at a dinner in March that Leslie Groves, the military head of the project, had said at a dinner hosted by the British scientists who were there, he said when they were raising the issue of why are we completing this, he was saying, well, you know that Germany was never really the target for this project. It's the Russians. That went around the camp because Los Alamos was structured by Oppenheimer so that It was absolutely top secret, super secret. And so now what you were getting was Groves saying, this is about the Russians. Well, you know, <laughs> a lot of these people thought that was a really bad reason to do it, and Ted was one of them. But while other people were writing letters to Roosevelt or petitions saying, you know, stop or bring them in, And Niels Bohr actually went to Roosevelt and said that. He was the most senior, famous Nobel Prize winner at the project. Ted thought, that's not going to work. The only thing that will stop a disaster of a U.S. monopoly on the bomb after the war is if some other country has the bomb, and it has to be the Soviet Union. Britain won't be an obstacle. France won't be an obstacle. And Germany certainly wouldn't. So it has to be Russia. So he decided he had to give it to them. But what was the deeper thinking about this notion that this was really about the Soviet Union? Because again, at the time, They were the allies of the United States. There was even a lot of kind of like fan fiction going around about how great Russia is and how wonderful things were in the Soviet Union. And Stalin was sort of this nice uncle type guy, right? It's, it's jarring to see those films now. So how did they explain that the Soviet Union might be the target? Well, it's just what Groves said. So nobody knew. Nobody knew what was going to happen. I don't think anybody imagined that 
there was going to be this 180-degree switch right after the war ended. I mean, on all counts, they were our ally and yeah. at that point. But I guess this comment opened people's eyes as to what else could happen with these bombs beyond the war, right? Yeah. 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 And I, I say in the book that I think Ted was surprisingly prescient as an 18-year-old to realize that the U.S. was not going to be a benign influence in the world if it had the bomb to itself. And he decided that he had to do something about it. Something big, deceptive, and very dangerous. In October, Ted took a two-week vacation from his work at Los Alamos. On the excuse of having his 19th birthday with his family in New York. Once in New York, Ted met up with his college friend, Saville Sachs. They had similar backgrounds. Sachs was also from New York, from a family of Russian immigrants, and the two men aligned in their leftist politics. And they conferred on how they could find a spy. That's a very hard thing to do. Spies don't advertise themselves. Their whole business is keeping secret. The friends wondered, could they make a contact at the Russian consulate? Sachs pointed out that Ted's picture would be available because they had all their ID pictures taken at Los Alamos and they would be being watched by FBI 24 hours a day. So Ted decided to go to Amtorg. Amtorg was the trade office of the Soviet Union, located in New York City's garment district. It handled all exports, things like firm, lumber, caviar. And for also selling confiscated items of the rich in Russia that they could get cash for, you know, like silver samovars and things like that. But Amtrak also served as a quasi-embassy, a point of connection, and Ted thought he might meet somebody there. And he got on an elevator, got out, and found a guy loading boxes in a storeroom, and he looked at him strangely and said, what do you want? And he said, he just told him, I'm a scientist working on a secret weapons project in New Mexico, and I need to tell someone in the Soviet Union about it because it's very dangerous for the U.S. to have it. Even though Ted had just acted on a hunch, Dave says he came to the right place. And I was later told by an expert on Russian spying and everything that Amtorg was a nest of spies because they gave people a good cover. The man at Amtorg ended up giving Ted an address and a name, Sergei Kornikov. He's a journalist, an American immigrant Russian journalist who knows everybody Russian in New York. He was a, an interesting guy himself. He was a former cavalry officer for the Tsar and fled to the U.S. when they lost, but then became a supporter of the Soviet Revolution afterwards, secretly. Meanwhile, Ted's friend Saville Sachs went to the Russian Culture Center and just started spilling the beans. I have a friend who's a scientist on the project. The man he was speaking to acted put off. He said, I can't help you. I'm not a spy. He was a spy, it turns out later. He told him, why don't you go see this guy, Sergei Kurnikov? He is a journalist and he knows everybody. So they both got the same guy. Were they... Aware of the risk they were taking? I mean, the, the way they went about this was so naive I, in I know. some way. I know. And this is still treason, and Ted must have known what happened to you. They both knew that it was a, a great risk, but he felt that it was essential to do. When Ted connected with Sergei Kurnikov, Kurnikov wasn't sure if he could trust Ted or if he should. He said, why would someone like you, if you are who you say you are— why would you want to betray your own country? And he said, because I think it's incredibly dangerous for the United States to come out of the war with the only atomic bomb. And he said that I just think that there should be two countries. And he gave him information. He told him the names of all these famous scientists who were in Los Alamos, all physicists. And he gave a drawing of the implosion system. And he said, give this to any Russian physicist and they'll know what, how serious this project is. 
time was running out for Ted. He was due back in Los Alamos in three more days. Once there, he would be cut off from communicating. So he said, I I have to hear from you before I go if I'm going to be a spy. Ted was at the train station, leaving for New Mexico, saying goodbye to his parents when he got his answer. And he sees this guy, Sergei Kornikov, sitting on a bench across the hall, beckoning to him. And so he goes, this is strange. So he walks over to the guy, excuses himself from his parents, and the guy says, you're in. And he says, okay, and that Sachs is going to be his courier, and they'll have to make arrangements to meet. So as he's walking back, he's thinking, what, how am I going to explain that to my parents, you know? And then his train got called, and so he rushes off to his train, thankful that he didn't have to tell his parents anything. And then he looks back, and Kornikov is saluting him. <gasps> and he, it was an emotional moment for him, you know? So that's how he got in. That's Dave Lindorf, an investigative journalist. His new book, Spy for No Country, tells the story of Ted Hall, the youngest physicist to work on the Manhattan Project, who leaked secret information about the atomic bomb to the Russians. Coming up, the FBI is on Ted's tail. They'd spelled it wrong. They called him Theodore Cole, K-H-O-L-L, but it was pretty clear it was Ted Hall. And Dave finds evidence on why Ted was never prosecuted for spying. They sent me 103 pages, and it was amazing. That's still to come on The Pulse. Support for this NPR podcast and the following message come from Amgen, a biotechnology pioneer leading the fight against the world's toughest diseases such as cancer, heart disease, asthma, and osteoporosis. In a new era of human health, Amgen continues to accelerate the pace of change, operating sustainably and drawing upon deep knowledge of science to push beyond what's known today. With each decade, they reliably deliver powerful new therapies to patients. Learn more at Amgen.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor Progressive Insurance, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Get your quote at Progressive.com and see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. This message comes from NPR sponsor Progressive Insurance, where drivers who switch could save hundreds on car insurance. Get your quote at Progressive.com today. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Support for NPR and the following message come from Bombas. Bombas makes absurdly soft socks, underwear, and t-shirts. And for every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Get 20% off your first purchase at bombas.com slash NPR and use code NPR. This is The Pulse. I'm Mike and Scott. We're talking about Ted Hall, who was the youngest physicist working on the Manhattan Project at Los Alamos. He became increasingly convinced that the U.S. should not be the only superpower to have an atomic bomb. And he shared secret details on the bomb's implosion mechanism with the Russians. Investigative journalist Dave Lindorf has written a book about Ted Hall. It's called Spy for No Country. Dave told me that Ted connected to Russian agents during a visit home to New York City. They instructed him to share information during clandestine meetups with his best friend, Savile Sachs, who would travel to New Mexico. So what do we know in terms of like how much information he continued to give for the remainder of the project? Well, we know because there were descriptions of it in the Venona cables, how important it was. The Venona Cables was a secret program of the U.S. Army that decrypted and translated messages from Soviet intelligence agencies and spies. It began during World War II and continued until 1980. The decrypted cables revealed that the information handed over by Ted Hall was really important for the Russians. 
So they had another spy at Los Alamos, a famous one, Klaus Fuchs. He was a German physicist and had fled the Nazis because he was a communist. He went to England and from there joined the Manhattan Project. The information Ted was giving the Russians confirmed and added to what they were hearing from Fuchs. That was the importance of Ted. He gave some new information that Fuchs didn't have because he was working so closely with the implosion system the engineering of it, and Fuchs was more theoretical. But between the two of them, it gave the Russians the confidence to take a limited amount of resources that they had and put it all into copying the Nagasaki bomb, which is what they did. They exploded almost a carbon copy in 1949. At what point did our intelligence services catch up to Ted Hall, and how was their suspicion raised? Okay, the FBI did a terrible job of security at Los Alamos. They had no idea it was penetrated. No idea. So the first inkling they had was early 1950 when the first uh, decrypts of the Venona transcripts were made. There was a breakthrough in the uh, Venona project, which was the precursor of the NSA. They had hundreds of people working with typewriters on trying to solve this code. And finally, one guy started to break it. It took them years to translate them. I mean, it was just amazing how complicated it was without computers. But the first one they translated was identifying Ted Hall by name. They'd spelled it wrong. They called him Theodore Cole, K-H-O-L-L. But they mentioned that his father was a furrier, Russian immigrant furrier, and that he was at Harvard. And, you know, it, it was pretty clear it was Ted Hall. They got that really fast. And Saviel Sachs was named too, which contributed to spotting them. And that was 1950. Hoover must have been excited as all held. But even though Ted Hall was clearly implicated here and the FBI was onto him, he was never charged, never prosecuted. The reason why had long been speculated about. But Dave was able to definitively answer this question through his research. Intelligence agents quickly discovered that Ted had an older brother, Ed, Ed Hall. The brother, when they looked him up in the military, turned out to be working in a top-secret missile lab at Wright-Patterson Air Base, working on motors for an ICBM. Intercontinental ballistic missile. First it was the Thor missile, and then it was the uh, Atlas missile. Later it was the Titan missile, and then he invented the Minuteman, the first solid-fuel quick-launch ICBM. He was a super genius rocket scientist, right? His brother. And you can imagine Hoover with that. So Ted Hall is discovered to have spied for the Russians, and his older brother, Ed Hall, is working on a super important project for the Air Force. If you charge Ted, you basically have to get rid of Ed, even if he hasn't done anything wrong. When I asked the FBI for Ed Hall, the brother, they said that we don't have a file on him. And I said, that's ridiculous. You know, if you knew that Ted Hall was an atomic spy and you knew that his brother was the head of the ICBM project for the Air Force, you definitely investigated him and you definitely have a file. And then they said, oh, yeah, we have a file. They sent me 103 pages. And it was Amazing. Dave found letters from the FBI to Ed Hall's superiors in the Air Force demanding to interview him about his relationship with his younger brother. There is another letter from Hoover in the file, and he had said, We urgently want to interview him. He says, We have interrogated Ted Hall and are ready to move ahead on this investigation and urgently need to interview Ed Hall. We haven't heard from you, right? So he's frustrated, and he said, we urgently need to interview him. Three months later, he does get to interview him, and Ed said, I didn't know anything about him. And in the report, he said, my relationship with my brother was very tight when we lived together, but I was in Europe all through the war. And my brother was in Los Alamos. We had very little contact, and I had very little contact with him since, which was a lie. 
Yeah, he and, knew. And a lie that they knew. Yeah. You know, they could have, they knew plenty. Yeah. And, and that would have been alone enough for them to have indicted him for lying to the FBI. And he said the last time he had seen him was a year before. And in the file, it shows that he made a trip very recently to visit Ted. Ted Hall's wife, Joan, told Dave that the older brother came to visit them unannounced after Ted had been interrogated by the FBI about his spying activities. And Ed said, what kind of trouble did you get yourself into? And Ted said, let's take a walk. No one knows what the two brothers said to each other that day. But Ted Hall denied any and all contact with the Russians when he was interrogated by the FBI. And then he refused to talk to them again. Dave says Ed's importance definitely protected the younger Hall. He also discovered all kinds of strange things in the FBI files. For example, how Ted and his wife Joan got away with destroying evidence that linked them to Communist Party activities in the U.S., even though they were being monitored around the clock by the FBI. One day, Ted just gathered everything they had in the house. And so they took it all, put it in a suitcase, got in a car, drove and dumped it in the Chicago drainage canal, which is a sewer, you know. And if they were being monitored, that was destroying evidence, right? And they were being monitored. And I wondered, why didn't they just bust them right there, right, and arrest them? It turns out that in the files are reports from that day that they did that in the morning of two FBI agents who went there to surveil them and started setting it up. And while one went around the back, the other one was in the car, and a guy came up to the car, opened the door, put a gun in his side, and he was going to hijack the car. The agent said in his report, he held a report on this, in his report he said, I pushed the gun aside, and uh, right then the radio went on, some kind of a message from the FBI to him, and he said the guy panicked and realized it was a police car and ran. And he said he got out of the car. The guy fired shots at him but missed. And he said, we didn't chase him because we weren't armed. And so they said, we decided to go back to the office. So they left. And I thought, that is hysterical. So the day that Ted did the destruction of evidence, there was nobody there. They'd gone away. <laughs> It seems like a bit too much of a coincidence, though. <laughs> it's hysterical. I right. mean, but, you know, I mean, it was Chicago. It wasn't a great neighborhood. Yeah. And they didn't think of Ted and Savvy as dangerous people. They didn't need to carry a gun. I mean, today, the FBI doesn't travel anywhere without guns. But in those days, it was different. And because of those guys mugging them or trying to mugging them, they ended up trying to find a Chicago cop who could pursue these guys because they couldn't. And it all went fell apart that day. It, it is mind-blowing. But I guess either way, Ed Hall was too valuable for Ted Hall to really get in trouble. Because if Ted Hall is fully outed as an atomic spy, then Ed Hall has to go. Yeah. Right? The, proof, <laughs> the proof of that, what I'm left with is that after... Within two weeks of the interrogation of Ed Hall, the Air Force promoted him to lieutenant colonel and made him director of the motor program. So obviously they were convinced by their own investigation of him that he was a totally loyal person. And he went on to be director of the entire Air Force ICBM program until he retired in 1960. And Hoover never leaked this. Hoover was a famous leaker. He never leaked that Ted Hall was a spy. And well, so it he, would have made him look really bad. Well, if yes, he were because he didn't, he didn't bust him. I mean, yes. but it's amazing that he could be shut down by the Air Force. Yeah. But that's, you know, the Pentagon was a more powerful organization than the FBI, especially back then in the Cold War. So nothing happened after that interrogation. It did say in the file that both of them were taken off the security index, which is the one that says you're a threat to American 
security and you get monitored 24 hours a day and your phone gets tapped and your mail gets covered. They were taken off that list. So they dropped them. Ted and Joan moved to England in 1962. Ted worked at Cambridge University until he retired. In the 1990s, when the National Security Agency released the information from the decrypted Soviet cables that implicated Ted, two U.S. journalists started reaching out to him. Dave says Ted was suffering from terminal renal cancer by then, a likely consequence of his work on the Manhattan Project. He was 74 years old. It was 1999. It was so long afterwards, and they weren't going to come after a guy who was about to die. After much hedging, Ted eventually agreed to an interview with authors and journalists Joseph Albright and Marsha Kunstel. Here's Ted. I have to think, I know that my body is uh, disintegrating rather slowly and gracefully, I hope, but I, I have to think in terms of its finiteness. And then I, I have to think that, well, that, that's my history and that's it. It, it doesn't, it would be nice to be proud, but I'm not, I'm, I'm not, I'm not a proud person. What made you do it? <laughs> I guess a major factor would be compassion. It's a stab at a description anyway. How did he talk about his motivations and how his thinking on the topic changed, especially as, you know, the Soviet Union turned out to be not the actor that he thought they would be or might be, or as maybe some of his thoughts on communism changed. How did he think about what well, he had well, done? Well, he actually said, you know, I did, not to me because he was already dead. He actually said and wrote down that if he had known the true crimes of Stalin and what his reign of terror and the destruction of the leaders of the revolution, that he wouldn't have had the stomach to do what he did. But he said, at the other hand, if he hadn't done it, he said, the way he put it was, he said, I still think that that young person that I was at that time did the right thing. There are people who think differently, right, who think he should have been tried and shot. Yeah, we have one in the movie I was producer of, Sam Cohen, who invented the neutron bomb. He said, and he was one of his good friends on the Manhattan Project. When he found out about this, he said he was a soldier, which he was during that time. He was drafted while he was working at Manhattan Project. He was a soldier, uh, military man. He should have been brought back, put in uniform, and court-martialed and then summarily shot. Dave says that Ted believed that the U.S. would have used nuclear bombs again in other conflicts if they had been the only ones with this capability. They came very close a number of times in Vietnam, twice in Korea. And the only thing that deterred them from doing it was knowing that the Russians could, would respond. And that each time came up. Eisenhower said it to the generals. Johnson said it to the generals who wanted to use it to rescue the Marines at Quezon. Without that being there, they would have used it because it would save American lives and it's cheaper, you know, and no one's going to stop us. Dave Lindorf is an investigative reporter and the author of Spy for No Country. It tells the story of Ted Hall, a physicist who worked on the Manhattan Project. Ted died in 1999 of kidney cancer at the age of 74. Before his death, when Ted was interviewed by the two journalists who later wrote a book called Bombshell, he talked about a message for future generations. I think the next generation um, should realize, should have to realize that uh, the world has come extremely close to real, actual, sorry, <laughs> didn't expect that. The world has come extremely close to real, actual, total disaster, catastrophe, and that people, not the government, but people must be concerned about these things and be prepared to 
insist, to demand, to compel government policies which uh, don't put the world at risk again. Coming up, what's the current state of America's nuclear arsenal? Will they always explode when we tell them to the way that we expect them to? And will they never have anything go wrong with them? That's still to come on The Pulse. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Oracle Cloud Infrastructure. OCI is the platform for database, application development, and AI needs. Do more and spend less, like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic. Take a free test drive at oracle.com NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Capella University. With Capella's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. This message comes from NPR sponsor Made in Cookware. Did you know that many popular dishes in Tom Colicchio's craft restaurant are made in Made in Cookware? Their carbon steel cookware combines the best of cast iron and stainless clad, gets super hot, and is tough enough for grills or open flames. Remember what great dishes on menus worldwide have in common. They're Made in Made in. Save up to 25% this Memorial Day from the 18th until the 27th. Visit MadeInCookware.com. That's M-A-D-E-I-N-Cookware.com. Support for NPR and the following message come from Bombas. Bombas makes absurdly soft socks, underwear, and t-shirts. And for every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Get 20% off your first purchase at Bombas.com NPR and use code NPR. This is The Pulse. I'm Mike and Scott. America's stock of nuclear weapons is getting old, or older, anyway. We haven't designed a new weapon since the the 1980s. So our youngest weapons are hitting 40? Approximately, yeah. That's Sarah Scholes. She's a science journalist. She says the U.S. has more than 5,000 nuclear weapons. Some of them are on submarines or on planes, while others are sitting in storage. Sarah traveled to remote parts of the U.S. to visit nuclear labs, including Los Alamos. And she spent a lot of time gaining the trust of the scientists working there. Her new book is called Countdown, The Blinding Future of Nuclear Weapons. How did nuclear weapons, in a way, fade from the public consciousness? When I was growing up, it felt like an existential threat, you know, in the 80s. It felt like at any moment my life could end because of a nuclear war. I grew up in Germany. I felt like as a teenager I was right in the path of whatever was going to blow up was going to be in my backyard. And then as I got older, that topic really faded from my mind, and I don't think I'm alone in that. So how did that happen? I think it mostly has to do with the end of the Cold War in the, mm-hmm. the early 1990s. Yeah, before that, there were lots of you know air raid drills for school children and things on primetime TV about nuclear war. And when tensions eased at the end of the Cold War... I think a lot of people thought that these bombs would become less relevant. Like, okay, they've been the source of and the effect of this tension for so long, but now this tension is gone and we can rely on them less. And there were even ideas, you know, that maybe we would phase them out more than we have. And so I think they faded from everybody's minds a little bit. And it's only really been in in recent years with new world conflicts that they've come a little bit back into mainstream thought. You write in the book that America's nuclear arsenal is old. That's a fact. But there is disagreement about the question, is it too old? So what's at stake here? Yeah, there's a phrase people use in the nuclear world, which is, are the nuclear weapons safe, secure, and reliable? Which basically means, will they 
always explode when we tell them to the way that we expect them to? And will they never have anything go wrong with them that we don't expect and, you know, not go off when we don't command them to? But in terms of whether they are too old and need a lot of modernization, I think the primary question in officials' minds is not, will they work at all and not, you know, will they blow up when we don't expect them to, which is not a likely possibility, but whether they are as effective as they used to be. The whole nuclear apparatus kind of rests on this idea of deterrence, which is we have nuclear weapons, therefore you won't attack us because you're afraid that we will retaliate against you with nuclear weapons. But that idea only works if other countries believe that our nuclear weapons will behave as expected. And and so I think the concern is whether that will be as true as it has been in the past and whether other countries will perceive it is as true as it has been in the past. Are there issues around physical deterioration? You know, I'm thinking of an old car, even if you keep it in storage at some point, it you know, it's not going to be as good as it was 20 years ago. So are there issues around the nuclear materials becoming less potent, the actual, you know, missile falling apart in some way? It's funny you mentioned the car analogy because it is one that gets uh, passed around the nuclear weapons labs. It's one, one they like to use of, yeah, you wouldn't buy a car in 1980, let it sit in your garage and then expect it to turn on and work exactly as it did in 1980. <laughs> um, and when you put it that way, it makes total sense. So yes, there is some concern about that because nuclear weapons aren't just made of scary radioactive material. You know, they're made of metal and, you know, other other components that nobody tells me about that do need to be replaced and updated. So the country has a program to kind of keep an eye on how all of those components are aging. But I think what, one of the biggest questions right now in that world is at the center of most modern nuclear weapons is something called a plutonium pit. A sphere of plutonium at the core of the warhead it's needed to detonate the bomb and to sustain a nuclear chain reaction. Plutonium's point and why it's in a nuclear weapon is that it decays over time. And so it's constantly, you know, the plutonium atoms are splitting, they're spitting out other atoms, radiation, energy, and that kind of knocks other atoms out of their place in the plutonium pit. It leaves behind impurities that weren't there before. And, you know, all the indications we have so far is that that is okay so far. But scientists have questions about what it means for the future and if they will be as effective and safe as they have been as time goes on and that process continues. Are people making a case that we should be building new weapons, we should essentially replace what we have, or is the effort more directed toward conservation? For the most part, it's more on the conservation side. They have mm -hmm. uh, what they call life extension programs and alterations to kind of take these old designs and these older weapons and bring their parts and pieces and functioning a little more into the 21st century. But we are designing a new weapon called the W93, which is the first one that we've designed since the Cold War ended. So there is one of those. And what's that one about, W93? We don't have a ton of details on it. You know, it's not fundamentally different from any of the ones that we have now, but it will be just a new addition to the nuclear family. The nuclear scientists Sarah writes about in her book are not just working on the weapons themselves. They are also thinking about ways to detect nuclear attacks. You profile one of the scientists in your book who works at Los Alamos National Laboratory. Her name is Tess Light. Who is she? What does she work on? She is a scientist at Los Alamos National Lab who works on detecting nuclear explosions from space. So on board every GPS satellite, which we think of as, you know, something for navigating home or to the grocery store, is also this sensor that detects nuclear explosions should they ever happen. And she kind of helps work on that program. And that's been her whole career is trying to figure out, is anyone blowing up a nuclear weapon anywhere on Earth? 
in a way that we can see from space. And that could be because there's an accident, that could be because of a, a conflict that goes nuclear, or it could be because someone is testing a nuclear weapon. And what makes that work challenging? I mean, on some level, you know, one might think if there is a nuclear explosion somewhere, we'll know about it, right? Because yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll either be dead or we'll see something. <laughs> right. Right. It does seem uh, like it would be pretty apparent from the ground. But the thing about it is you don't ever want to be wrong if you're going to accuse someone of detonating a nuclear weapon. Like there are just regular explosions that can, you know, have that classic mushroom cloud or things like that. And so before you accuse someone of doing one of the world's worst things, you want to be sure about it. And to do that, you have to understand the radioactivity, you have to see the radio waves from it, you have to feel the ground shaking, you could see a burst of light, and kind of put all these different signatures together that say this was for sure a nuclear weapon. Since Sarah and I spoke, there's been news that Russia is working on an anti-satellite nuclear weapon that could be used in space, which could make the ability to detect attacks more urgent. You also write about another scientist who is a colleague of Tess Light's. His name is Josh Carmichael, and he used a real explosion that happened here in Philadelphia, albeit not a nuclear one, thank God. But he used that explosion to test one of his computer models. So talk about what happened there. It was a few years ago, and Josh is a person who, he's an expert in seismic signals, so detecting whether the, the ground is shaking from something. But he has always thought that this question of, did a nuclear weapon explode or not, should be, like you were saying earlier, simpler, faster. And so he has kind of been working on an automatic way to combine all those different signals that an explosion has happened into one and kind of automatically say, hey, somebody important, you should take a look at this. All of these signals indicate that there's been a nuclear explosion. But before testing that system on a nuclear explosion, he wanted to test it on regular explosions. So a few years ago when there was a, I believe it was a propane plant that had an explosion in Philadelphia, mm -hmm. he just saw it on the news. It was big news. And so he immediately started pulling in signals from different sensors and even things like social media feeding them into this uh, software system that he had developed and asking it to say, like, do you think what just happened in Philadelphia was an explosion or not? And luckily, it was a pretty obvious explosion, but his software gave a 99% probability, I think, that that was the, the case. So that was his first big test of it. You talk to a lot of scientists who work in this field, and... I'm sure it can be a difficult field to work in because you're probably thinking a lot about the work you're doing and whether you are on the right side of things, so to speak. How do some of the scientists feel about it? How did they talk about it when you asked them? One way is through this idea of deterrence, which is that in some way nuclear weapons help keep the world peaceful because they prevent people from having large-scale conflict because they're afraid of nuclear war. So if you have nuclear weapons, you don't have large-scale conflict because no one wants to start a nuclear war. So then in that rationalization, working on nuclear weapons keeps the world more peaceful. And I think there are, you know, some people who work on them for those reasons. But I think the best encapsulation I have heard is that there's this idea called disarmament, which is basically, you know, we should get rid of nuclear weapons and not have them anymore. But that's not like a realistic scenario for tomorrow, say. Um, it's a good long-term goal, but probably not going to happen overnight. So as long as disarmament remains a long-term goal, deterrence is necessary. And as long as deterrence is, you know, kind of shaky and unreliable, we should work toward disarmament. And I think that that is mostly the attitude of the people who work on nuclear weapons. And then there are the people like Tess Light, who we were talking about earlier, who work on, you know, making sure people aren't testing them, making sure people aren't building more of them or more than they're supposed to. And in that way, like kind of keeping essentially like a watchdog eye on the nuclear complex is one way to be involved while maybe moving toward a world that's less reliant 
on them. After doing all of this reporting, is an accident more on your mind or an actual conflict? I think maybe a combination of accident and actual conflict. I think... Oof. <laughs> yeah, bad news. Bad news. <laughs> um, I think a scenario which we have had in the past where, let's say, the United States gets some indication that an attack is happening or is about to happen and plans a response, but what it's responding to isn't real or is a miscommunication or like a data misfire or something like that. And so then we are responding to something that's not real or misreading the minds of other world leaders. I just think there's a lot of room for that kind of thing that seems more likely to me maybe than just someone deciding they want to start nuclear World War III. But I think in this case, what's worrisome to me about nuclear war is that the people who work in the nuclear weapons world are equally or more worried about a nuclear catastrophe than the general public. And I think that's always a worrisome scenario. You know, they understand that we've honestly been pretty lucky to not have had like an accident or miscommunication so far. And I think most people would agree that that can't be true forever and that that does worry them. And so now now it worries me. <laughs> but I think, you know, like anything, you also kind of get used to it. So maybe two years ago or three years ago, when I first started reporting for the book, it was, you know, a scenario that would keep me up at night sometimes. And now it's just kind of ingested into my worldview, for better or worse. Sarah Scholes is a science journalist. Her new book is Countdown, The Blinding Future of Nuclear Weapons. That's our show for this week. The Pulse is a production of WHYY in Philadelphia. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Our health and science reporters are Alan Yu, Liz Tung, and Grant Hill. Marcus Biddle is our health equity fellow. Our intern is Jaden George. Charlie Kyer is our engineer. Our producers are Nicole Curry and Lindsay Lazarski. I'm Mike and Scott. Thank you for listening. This message comes from NPR sponsor, the Capital One Venture X Card. Earn unlimited 2X miles on everything you buy. Plus, get access to a $300 annual credit for bookings through Capital One Travel. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. Details at CapitalOne.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor, HubSpot. Imagine growing a business with high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today. All that sitting and swiping, your body is adapting to your technology. Learn how and what you can do about it. I really felt like the cloud in my brain kind of dissipated. Once I started realizing what a difference these little bricks were making, there's no turning back for me. Take NPR's Body Electric Challenge Listen to the series wherever you get your podcasts.